Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the July 9th, 2020 episode, um, episode 45, and today is more of a podcast medley episode. I don't know if you guys like it. I I took a look at the analytics data from um, since I started the podcast, and I've noticed that some of, sometimes these kinds of podcast learning medley episodes are actually quite popular which is surprising um but i guess it's kind of it it might actually make more sense because i'm talking about people who are you know experts and that i find interesting who know more about stuff than i do and i'm just learning from them so maybe it's actually helpful that i condense hours of interviews that i listen to into a few that i think are pretty valuable but anyhow so today's um i spent the entire day kind of doing a podcast marathon and listening to a number of uh, various interviews with people and two particular ones I think took up much of my mind space just I just ended up thinking about it more all throughout the day and so I thought maybe I'll just talk about those particular two so the first one is um, from the invest like the best podcast by Patrick Shaughnessy and it's with I'm pausing because I don't want to butcher the name Um, it's by Shishir Marota um, sorry, Shishiri, if I messed it up, but it's the episode titled The Art and Science of the Bundle, and Shishiri is, I believe, the founder and CEO of Coda. I first learned about Coda um, from my girlfriend, who actually suggested I look into the business product because I'm a hardcore Evercore, uh, Evernote user, um, and I've, I've heard that Coda is kind of in line with other, um, I don't know what you call it, it's not productivity apps, but I guess kind of more of a I don't know, workspace management, work work uh, document management uh, software, but it seems like they have a greater functionality than just um, compiling notes, That which is what mainly what I do with Evernote. But anyhow, that's how I kind of got familiar with Shishir. And this particular interview was also a good way for me to get an understanding of kind of the digital media landscape, which tends to be the kind of area that I'm particularly very fascinated in. Um, maybe it's because I do podcasts and I like uh, writing and creating my own media platform as well. But I think the overall ethos of this um, interview is about addressing Shishir's long paper about addressing the four myths myths of bundling. And I included the entire paper in um, the show notes it's pretty interesting, but I think overall the interview does a pretty great job of addressing each of the issues. I'm not going to talk about all four of them, but the ones that really, the ideas that I think were new and interesting for me to understand was first the marginal churn contribution. Um, MCC is what Shishir uses as this metric where in inside like those traditional TV bundles, you have all these various channels you get and some are channels that you don't want to get, but you just happen to get it. And it's it's correlated with this idea of like well then what is the actual value of each part of the bundle like what what is the value of the part that makes the sum and 
it seems like the metric that um, I think it actually makes sense is this MCC metric where you actually want to see like, well, what is the part that, um, like, what is the attrition rate when a particular part is missing? So for example, if a TV bundle has ESPN and if most of your uh, bundle subscribers will leave that product, if ESPN is no longer there, then the MCC value um, for ESPN would be extremely high compared to, I don't know, something like the Food Network channel, where even if it's gone, no one really cares. Then the churn contribution is very uh, minimal, I guess. I think that's how you're supposed to understand it. I might be wrong, but that's how I understood it. And But that gives you an idea of like, well, yeah, how, how valuable is each particular channel slash part in the bundle? And that can lead to the second idea of, because right now I think we've, had TV kind of already be in a bundling phase and we've been we are currently I believe in an unbundling where we have all these individual um, providers like Netflix Hulu you know Prime Video and you're just individually subscribed to all of them but there is discussion about how well we'll probably go back to a rebundling but for the rebundling to work transparency needs to be kind of built into the bundling process and that's where MCC could probably come into a factor where if something were to be rebundled, well, I'd like to know um, what the actual value I'm getting is, right? Because previously, if I had a t- if I had a bundle set, like I've had this too, where I would call um, Rogers, which is which was the um, cable TV provider I used to use back in uh, I want to say like 2013. Um, that's when I still had cable TV. Like I'd call them and say, well, I, I only want sports. I don't really care about news or anything else. I don't watch anything else. I just want to have live sports, um, and that was just not available. But I always thought, yeah, like it's probably what gonna cost me like maybe ten dollars just to get the two channels I want, but maybe it's not. Like if, for example, it turns out like with the previous um, discussion where if the MCC of like the sports channel, like for example ESPN, which I we don't get here in Canada, I think um, at least I didn't. And if, for example, yes, yeah, so if the value of ESPN is actually the value attributable to nearly all of the bundling cost, so if the um, Cable package TV cost something like sixty dollars, and ESPN's MCC was so high that you know its channel alone would be at least fifty dollars, or maybe even sixty dollars, and everything else is really negligible. Then, if I knew that, then I would actually feel better about having the bundle because then I know, okay, so the sports channel alone, like the value of the sports channel alone, is the cost of the entire bundle. Then fine, I'll do that, um, and I'll just have all the other stuff for free. But I think it, this idea of showcasing the transparency and like showing how much each thing actually costs would be extremely valuable in making the rebundling process work for consumers because now it's more now I understand it now I can assess the value of it and the behavior of bundling actually doesn't feel so predatory uh, for the consumer so I think those were kind of the ide- big ideas I took away and how the bundling the rebundling would probably become inevitable because there are a lot of various media sets, uh, media channels and programs that just cannot command um, the kind of, I guess, individual value that, for example, a sports channel might have. And so they would have to be bundled in and they would have to be kind of packaged in with um, more valuable programs. And that's just kind of because they can't draw enough like casual fans versus the kind of small amount of hardcore fans they might have. And that's something she uh, sure goes into deeper, which I think I'll probably have to listen to again to get a better understanding of, but I thought that was also pretty fascinating to how he kind of goes through um, the kinds of fans that are more valuable for um, 
each kind of program. But I think the big thing that, so the, the, this is kind of what I learned from the bundling aspect, which is what I was intending to learn about. But I think the reason why I was really um, excited about the episode was actually in the final segment where Patrick Ronachanasi always asks each of his guests, what's the kindest thing someone's ever done for you? And I didn't know this, but Shishir was actually coached by Bill Campbell, commonly known as the Trillion Dollar Coach because he was the coach to um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin at Google, was the coach to um, Steve Jobs and all these like the who's who of big tech. And I'm also a big fan of the of his own um, was it biography. Yeah, I think autobiography is if you write it yourself. But yeah, so um, Eric Schmidt, I believe, um, and a couple other authors worked together to write a biography of Bill Campbell, and he's someone who has a, ha, built a career that I want to cr- create on my own eventually. So that's someone I admire a lot, and that's why I think I was extremely more excited to learn that Shishir was actually uh, a coachee of Bill Campbell's um, before Bill went on to coach all the people at Google, and that was pretty fascinating to learn to learn from his kind of experience what um, Bill Campbell did for him and how. Um, Bill Campbell had his own kind of scorecard of not measuring success with money, fame, or power, but using um, how his own coaches ended up succeeding as a scorecard of how well he was able to help them um, and what he was able to achieve. And it might sound too altruistic, but I think these are the very valuable things to consider consciously try to incorporate into one scorecard to make it in one way, I think it's still quite intrinsically motivated um, because you still want to help other people become the best version of themselves and their success is something that you can actually feel proud about. And I think another thing that I took away was how um, Shishir as well as the other coaches kept on talking about how Bill Campbell never, like always seemed to have time for each of them. Um, And I think this is a very conscious effort that Campbell had to make to actually make time because you always have to make time for someone and as you get more popular and busier and as you know this Campbell's coaching all these high-tech executives it can be like he could have always I feel like said yeah I don't have time but apparently he always had time he always made time and I think that kind of conscious decision making um, is very admirable and something that I would love to emulate in the future and so this was um, it's just kind of it was more of a motivating uh, interview for me, especially the last part. And yeah, it's something I thought would be pretty valuable for other people to listen to as well. So you can learn about bundling, but at the same time, understand the value of um, the teachings that someone like Bill Campbell has had on a leader like Shishir. And the second episode, uh, second podcast I'll talk about is with Chmath, uh Pali Hapitiya. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, he's I don't think he needs much of an introduction. He's the founder of Social Capital, and I think his 2020 CNBC interviews have made a huge splash, and it's been super entertaining to watch. And I think most people I know uh, who's somewhat even remotely interested in business have watched all the interviews. So um, this was an interview he did with Odd Lots, which is a podcast run by Bloomberg, and Bloomberg has a ton of other podcasts. I think this is one of the many that they have. But they just this just kind of came on the radar, and... The title is that he's talking about the future of big tech, but I honestly found most of the interview relatively just kind of even keeled. There wasn't anything um, that was 
too different from what Chamath has previously ranted about. And I think that depends on how much you've been following him. Like I've been following Chamath ever since I was in university. So like even in like 2014, I was watching Chamath's interviews um, consistently because I just like, I guess it's his personality and his just kind of no bullshit mentality of just talking about what's whatever he's thinking about. But, um, and a lot of it, I think it's just kind of, it's just super entertaining. Like I get entertained by um, people who just say things that could actually be considered to be very um, politically incorrect. And that's probably why I like watching stand-up comedy um, a lot of the times as well. But without um, going off into too much of a tangent, I think the big piece that I was once again kind of hooked on what came at the end of this podcast episode as well. Um, on a side note, that's something I have noticed. Like Even when I do podcast episodes, it takes a long time, I think, to get into really good parts of the interview where people actually start talking about things that are actually on their minds and are very crucial and usually i think that's why three-hour podcast interviews are the best because it takes about an hour to actually get into um you know the the driving gear quote-unquote and then the next two hours then gets more focused on what the person actually cares about and so that's probably why i find the later parts of interviews to provide the best nuggets but for this one in particular, it was, I think, a question that Shamas was asked on what, how, something like how or whether like big tech um, should hand, like deal, take a lead on fixing all this racism and inequality issues um, that are out there. And like, what should big tech do? What should the leaders of tech do? And I found Shamas' response um, to be quite marvelous. It's not one that's said often because I find most people most um, leaders in tech just kind of they're just very reactive to things and they just I feel a lot of it's very PR and a lot of it's it's very um, virtue signaling it's just like all these you know it's just recently with, with all these companies boycotting Facebook um, saying like oh yeah it's all about because of free speech I think it's total bullshit I think most companies that are boycotting Facebook are just doing it as a way to virtue signal, like they never were going to spend that money anyways, given the COVID and the recession. So they're just using it as a marketing ploy. I think that might be skept- um, quite cynical of me, but I think that's true um, because why now? Why didn't they do this 10 years ago? Why didn't they do this 15 years ago? Um, you don't just suddenly become quote unquote woke. I think it's just a lot of it is PR related. And I felt this response by Shamas was rather more genuine and it was the idea that um, tech as an industry is not responsible for addressing any of this. And to believe that a specific industry, a sector, or even some few wealthy individuals should be the ones who address the issue, I think um, completely misses the mark and that's never going to create sustainable change. And Shamas talks about how the change has to come from the kind of microcosm, the individuals um, in everyday society because it is a societal issue and every individual needs to be um, needs to kind of have a shift in mentality and behavior to address um, the kind of systematic racist problem that actually probably exists Um, and the big thing that Chumal talks about is that it'll be even more powerful if that change actually happens in the oppressing class because if the people that are being oppressed, you know, the people of color in general, just minorities in general, um, constantly talk about it. It can it can kind of come off as just like we're just complaining. Um, and 
if you actually have someone from your own tribe, so if you know a Caucasian told another Caucasian, "Hey, you shouldn't be doing this," then you're more likely to take them seriously and think about maybe changing your behavior. And that's what kind of Chima talks about, which I thought was very um, well articulated, much better than I'm doing now. And I think the bigger things also were just kind of the way the interview kind of humanized him because he shared specific examples of how like, you know, after 9-11, how he would be patted down a lot. He had like SSS written on his uh, boarding pass all the time, even if he was flying first class and how, um, you know, despite being this super wealthy guy who runs a venture capital fund, uh, he was still being um, treated like he'd blow up a plane. And... I guess, yeah, like, I, I never even considered that because, you know, I guess luckily for me, Asians didn't blow up pl- planes before, so I'm, I've never been subjugated to any of that. Um, but, yeah, I think that was quite uh, quite interesting. And also because, like, technically, like, Chumath isn't even from a Middle Eastern background. I believe he's um, Indian by heritage. So I thought that was also pretty fucked up um, because I, I don't know, I, I can tell the difference between someone who's from a Middle Eastern country compared to someone from a South Asia country. But I guess that's just kind of indication of racism because you're not really taking time to even like think about whether this person actually is from that geographical location or not. You're just completely basing it on actually, I guess, the color of their, of their skin. Um, but yeah, like to hear about that from someone who's actually in you know a position of power, I thought was pretty um, interesting. And apparently when Chumoth had sent all these emails to airlines and trying to tell them, like, yeah, this is ridiculous. Like, why are you treating me like this? And apparently they didn't really care until Chumoth told his Caucasian coworker who sent the exact same email. And then they actually responded immediately. So that kind of, I think, is one of the indicators of why Chumoth says the issue needs to be figured out amongst the people in, I guess, the quote-unquote um oppressing uh, race where I guess in this case it would be the Caucasians now in other countries it would be a different race obviously but something else I think was also interesting is how just kind of him admitting that yeah he hate like he he feels like shame and he feels shitty about um, being targeted and uh, that's why that's why he has an Asian driver <laughs> driving him around because if he has a uh, an african-american driver then he's more likely to be pulled over if he has a caucasian driver then people and then he might be questioned for if he's like stealing the car and i thought that was just so honest and just a very real example of things that go on in your mind and that made me kind of go down this long ass rabbit hole on my own behaviors and what um how do i how do i deal with racism how do i think about it and in many times i just kind of let it go um like i think for me, I've been. I I I feel like I've been subject subjected to some kind of racism or discrimination since I was um, five. Since that's when I left South Korea, and so I, like I was subjected to racism by Chinese people when I lived in Hong Kong because I was not Chinese. So um, I felt raci- racism there. Um, I've been subjected to racism. I'd say you know ever since I moved to Canada, like I, I've had friends' mom call me a chink. I've had you know people on the streets call me a chink. Um, and, you know, like, I think even in Toronto, you always have, I guess this is also another thing where it does piss me off, but it's like one of those things where I think it's also one of the reasons why I hate alcohol is because for some reason, Caucasians think it's really acceptable to scream out um, some kind of Asian uh, slur or kind of like 
try to speak Chinese to you um, just because you're drunk. And it's always, you know, Caucasian males in groups just being idiots about it. And I'll just kind of let it go or I'll just let them know politely that I'm not Chinese. But I think all those acts do somewhat like they rub off, rub off the wrong way. Right. Um, and I think I'm not the only one. I think most people experience it. I think most friends of mine who are Asian um, have experienced racism in one form or another. Although I, th- I think I've probably, I'm probably more the, um, I guess, luckier case. I haven't had anything extreme before that I'm aware of, <laughs> but it, it has got me thinking more about what Chamath also talks about where um, he talks about how certain kind of racism, or just being, having grown up with this kind of, um, I guess, racist environment around you, um, it changes how you behave. Like, I didn't realize this, but I, when I think back on it, I think about how, yeah, like, I, I'll not say certain things or I'll not act certain ways because I don't want Caucasian people to judge me in a negative light for and try to stereotype me as, oh, I'm saying this or I'm thinking this because I'm Asian. Like, um, for example, I'll, you know, I'll not get excited by things on sale because I don't want people to think I'm cheap and think that I'm cheap because I'm Asian. And these are, like, so I'll specifically go and just buy more expensive things or just ignore items on sale because I don't want people to stereotype me, me being value conscious as me also being Asian. And because I feel that's a very negative thing to do to someone. And the way I've always had thought about handling racism was actually very well, I think, articulated by Morgan Freeman in a 60 Minutes interview he did with Mike Wallace. In there, Mike Wallace asks Morgan Freeman how to, um, how, how, how should racism be handled? Like, how would he deal with racism? And Morgan Freeman um, just tells him to stop talking about it. Um, Freeman says, like, to Wallace, I'll, I'll stop calling you a white man if you stop think, calling me a black man. And we're just two people. And I think that's just how I've always been trying to deal with it. Like, it's, it is hard, I think, when, you know, a Caucasian um, screams at you and, you know, acts in some kind of racist way. And you might think, then I think my initial intention, uh, instinct is always to think, oh, man, Caucasians are all racist. But the reality is that I've just met one asshole and it's just just one asshole of many out there, regardless of race. Like, there can be um, Asians who are assholes. There can be African-Americans who are assholes. Like, they're all out there. It's it's unfair to make one bad apple represent an entire race. And that's something I'm constantly working on, and that's been my attitude towards it. But I think what Chamas talks about um, on creating change, it would be extremely important um, to have the change happen from within. Like, I think it'd be important for, for example if my Asian friends would say that, yeah, like, you know, Caucasian people are all racist for me to tell them, no, they're not. It's just a few assholes who are, and the rest are extremely kind. And then you should constantly showcase people who've been very kind. And like, that's been the indicator for me. Like I've seen Caucasians defend um, people who are being oppressed, like on public transit and stuff. And I think kudos to them. They're actually, I think the one saying a good example. So I think that kind of thing is a very powerful message. And I think that, I wish that was the bigger message that was shared um, as a result of the interview, but I don't know. I wonder if it made the interviewers really uncomfortable because they were both Caucasian and Shamas kind of pointed that out um, because in the podcast, um, they do kind of a debrief of what the interview was like, and they just don't talk about that at all um, in the debrief. They just talk about big tech and um, yeah, I thought that was... That was very unfortunate because that probably would have been the opportunity for them to do exactly what Chamath recommended. But yeah, 
So that's kind of it um, for my big kind of rant. I know this became a little too personal. Usually I talk more about facts and figures and more on kind of business and people in general. But I thought this kind of was very big on the people angle today. Um, one from just the idea of the value of a coach and um, thinking about developing people and just kind of more of the other side where if you're trying to build a society that can be cohesive in general, then the biggest thing to do is to look within, fix yourself, address yourself, and then focus on helping your own tribe instead of trying to point fingers at someone else. Um, but yeah, that's it for today. Hope this was interesting. Hope this was entertaining, at least. And hope to have you back on the podcast again for the next episode. Take care.